0: Alright, Philippians chapter number 2, verse number 1, Paul says this, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, that's going to be our primary focus, but I want you to notice what the next verse says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you may not be tremendously familiar with those first four verses, but you probably immediately recognize Verse number five, because it opens one of the great doxologies, one of the great declarations of the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God the Father in all of Scripture. Now, one of the things I've always been fascinated by is that we tend to have such a single track mind when we look at Scripture. Now, I think it's one of the great impediments to us really drawing the richness out of the word of God. We either view passages or maybe it's just me, maybe I'm just indicting myself. But I think there's a tendency to view a passage either as predominantly practical or predominantly doctrinal. One of the two. But one of the great things we find in the Pauline epistles especially is that Paul will very often give a great doctrinal truth and then draw that thing down to our practical everyday level of living and show us how that great truth about God or about Christ or about the Holy Spirit or the Word of God or the church, whatever it might be, how that should inform and influence the way we interact with each other. You know, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, there was not a great deal of problems that he had to address, uh, especially compared to a church like Corinth, you know, or, or Colossae, uh, where he had to straighten out a lot of big problems, be they moral or doctrinal issues of the church at Galatia that was in utter turmoil, they were getting ready to devour one another as far as their spirit and their attitude and their interactions. When he wrote to the church at Philippi, it was almost like there was this one little fly in the ointment about this letter, and it, it centered upon two ladies, two individuals in the church, who appeared to have some kind of strife, some kind of discord that had spilled over into the body at large. Uh, their names, and I've told you that every time I mention them, I know I mention their names wrong. Sintiki or Sintike, or, uh, I could spell it before I could say it. And then a woman by the name of Iodias. Now, he mentions them by name in chapter number four. He rebukes them by name and exhorts them to be like-minded. But all throughout the book of Philippians, he sort of just gives these gentle hints at their, at their problem. And how they can correct that before he really has to bear down on them in public rebuke. Well, he has turned his attention away from his own sufferings, away from his own trials, away from the example of the Philippians in godliness and in in laboring in the gospel. And now he has really turned to the heart of why he wrote this little letter. He wants these ladies to get things settled, and he wants the church at large to labor together in a spirit of unity and Christ-mindedness. And so he's going to give three great examples. And we'll see it in chapter number 2 and chapter number 3 and chapter number 4. Three great examples about uh, how they can overcome their strife and their discord. He's going to talk about, first and foremost, and we'll look at it tonight, uh, Christ Himself. And then he's going to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. But before he ever turns to those other brethren, he points to Christ himself as being the great example and the great arbiter of harmony and of like-mindedness and of fellow laboring together. And he basically tells them this, that if you can't look at Calvary and see a reason to put aside strife and discord, then there's probably no help or hope that you'll have peace in your interactions with one another. So there are three great... Uh, approaches are three great ideas that we find in the verses that we're going to cover tonight. In verses one through four, Paul deals with his approach to the example of Christ. In other words, that great doctrinal declaration in verse number five down to verse number 11 is not disconnected from a practical problem they were facing. Then in verses five through 11, we see Paul's appeal to the example of Christ. He's going to point to Christ and use him as an example of what it means put others before yourself and to put God before all and to find peace in it. And then finally, in verses 12 through 18, he's going to give us an application of the example of Christ. He's going to tell them now exactly how they should react and behave considering their situation. So let's notice these three thoughts together. First, Paul's approach to the example of Christ. In these verses, Paul builds up to Christ's example, doesn't just jump into it, but he exhorts them and challenges them to like mindedness. Notice first off, his distress. He says, "If there be any consolation in Christ, comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels of mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded." You know the implication there is that Paul's saying it sort of looks like right now that there's not any of these things. And I know that in my life there is a great many times that I am not living up to the spiritual truth of my life. I'm not living up to the spiritual reality that God has executed and has called me to in my life. And I think this was the case with these individuals. In other words, you might have heard somebody say it this way, act like somebody. Sometimes, if I'm being honest, I I, I act like nobody. (laughs) And Paul looks at him and he says, you know, you're acting as though none of these things are present. He says, I know that I've not labored in vain. I know that these things are present. And therefore, you ought to react in an appropriate manner to them. Notice the basis of his appeal. How and why they could and should put away their strife. And he mentions a few things. First, he mentions the supreme basis. He says, if there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love. The word consolation that is used here, you'll find it several times in Scripture. Uh, Paracosis and or paraclesis, excuse me, and and it sometimes refers directly to the Holy Spirit Himself. Same word that Christ used when He talked about the Holy Spirit and called Him the the Comforter. And then the word Paul uses for comfort, paramutian, it has the idea of an incentive or a stimulating force. Essentially, what He's saying is this: If if the Holy Ghost, if the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. And if the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost, then there ought to be a path and a passion to try to get this thing settled in your life. You know, this is the sad truth, but I've known people, and you probably have too, that seem to grow comfortable in drama and strife the way a pig is in sloth. They live in it. It's their natural habitation. I've known people in my life that were not happy unless there was an uproar. And Paul says, as as children of God, we shouldn't be that way. Uh, We should have the Spirit of Christ within us. And we do explicitly as children of God, but we should allow the Spirit of Christ to be exercised through us and expressed through us in our obedience to Him. Again, this is opening the door to a great and broader truth when he's going to look at Christ's example. Then notice the supernatural basis. He says, if any fellowship of the Spirit. I am guilty of being the source of discord amongst Christians, and you probably have been too. But isn't it an astounding thought that two individuals indwelt by the same Spirit could ever be in disagreement? You know, you think about what happens when a man and a woman get married, a husband and wife get married, and they twain become one flesh. And you see this synchronizing, this harmonizing, this weaving together of their lives. Now, it's not to suggest there aren't disagreements. Of course there are. But it is amazing how much you become like your spouse the longer that you're married to them. It's even been joked before that people live together long enough, they start to look like each other. And I'll let you all decide whether that's good or bad. But there is a harmonizing and a melding together. Well, imagine if you both had exactly the same mind within you. Imagine if you both had the exact same passions and purposes. In fact, i found that my marriage is happiest when we are single-minded in our passions and our desires and our purposes, when we have a common goal, when we have a common uh, path that we're wanting to walk. Well, as a child of God, you know that you have the Spirit of God in you. I have the Spirit of God in me. So the quickest way to harmony is for us both to obey the Spirit of God. We'll never be out of harmony one with another. So there is a supernatural basis. If we're walking in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit can resolve whatever conflict that we have. And He could for these ladies as well. And then notice the supporting basis. He says, if any, bows and mercies. And we've already talked about what that term bows means. It means a deep feeling. It means sort of a visceral or guttural feeling that one has instinctive almost by nature. And mercies deals with compassion. We might say it this way, uh, when it talks about bowels and mercies, it's talking about their heart and their compassion for each other. The willingness to feel and be emotionally inconvenienced for another person, and the exercising of that willingness. I think that very often we have a tendency to try to shut people out. It's easier that way, it's simpler that way to keep people at an arm's distance. But very often what happens is it becomes a breeding ground for discord. If we don't care what other people think, pretty soon we're gonna be we're gonna become at odds with one another. Now it doesn't mean we all live our lives slaves to other men's opinions, but it does mean that, particularly in the body of Christ, inasmuch as we love each other, I understand what it means to say, Well, I don't care what nobody thinks. And there is a way and a time and a place in which that is appropriate. But when it comes to your brothers and sisters in Christ, it ought to be our desire uh, that we be an encouragement and a blessing to them. And we ought to have a desire for us to have harmony one with another. If there's no desire to get along, we won't get along. It's a supernatural thing to get along. So if there's no heart, no compassion, no bowels and mercies, then of course there will be no harmony, there'll be no unity. And then notice the burden of his appeal. He says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded having the same love. Paul said, and he over and over again talks about his joy In the book of Philippians, but he says, you know, despite all of the great, unconquerable, invincible joy that has been infused into my spirit by the truth of Christ and by the help of the Lord and the presence of God, he says there are some things that only you can give me joy in. I think that it is good that our joy and our peace rest upon the person of Christ. But as we strive for that, let us never forget just how big of an impact our actions have on other people's peace of mind and well-being. I'll tell you right now, there, there are people that if they're, if they're troubled, it troubles me. If they're heartbroken, it breaks my heart. If they're joyful, it makes me joyful Because our hearts are knit together. And that's how it ought to be. But let me remind you that that burden lies upon your shoulders and mine as well. There's people that feel that way about us and care deeply how we Think and what we feel about matters. And so no man's an island unto himself. I think one of the great tragedies of church life today is we have become very self-centered. We have lost a sense of commitment, a sense of oneness with one another and oneness to one another. So much so that we're all just sort of floating around, just bouncing around like like balls in a pinball machine, and never recognizing that our lives have direct bearing on one another. Paul said, "I want joy." And I'll have joy when I see you walking in harmony. So he talks about his distress. And then he points to their discord. Look at the end of verse number 2. It says, Fulfill ye my joy that you be what? Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He points to the need that they had for like-mindedness in what they thought, in their heads, we might say, or in their principles. They need to be thinking the right thing. There are deep and abiding rifts in society today that are based on the fact that there are clashing world views and ideals. For a long time in society, there are things that we have taken for granted. And all the while we have slept, the enemies crept in and sowed seeds of doubt and seeds of betrayal in our national fabric. There are things that were taken for granted. There was a time that everybody always believed that capitalism was right, that communism was bad, that democracy was good, that totalitarianism was evil i got news for you. There, It's becoming increasingly apparent in today's society that some of the flashpoint conflict you're seeing in society today, it's not just drama, it's not just nonsense. There are world views crashing into one another. And there are entire generations of young people that are being raised believing fundamentally different things about who our country is, what our country is, and what it should be than you and I were raised to believe. There's no like-mindedness. And because of that, there can be no unity. In the body of Christ, we have to agree on the truth, of the Word of God. That doesn't mean you're always going to agree with everything I say or me, you. But we have to agree on the foundational, fundamental truths of God's Word. We have to agree that we have a Bible. We have to agree it's, it's inerrant. We have to agree that uh, Christ was born of a virgin. We have to agree He was God, robed in flesh. We have to agree that gospel is by grace through faith. There are certain things that if we don't have agreement on, there's not going to be unity. There's not going to be peace. And Paul exhorts them in what they think, in their ideals, in their principles, to be like-minded. Not only in what they thought, but in what they wrought. He said, having the same love. Having the same love. You've got to love the same thing. Uh, One of the things I see very often in marriages where there is discord is that very often there is an improper imbalance of priorities. Some people love certain things and other people love other things. Some people love money. Some people love their children. Some people love the Lord. Some people love free time, all manner of different things. And that can be a source of discord. Well, that's true in the body of Christ as well. We need to get it settled what's most important. That Christ is who's most important. That it's about pleasing Him, not pleasing ourselves. That reaching people with the gospel is paramount. That it's important. That it's more important than our comfort or our leisure or our ease or whatever it might be. That that is the paramount thing. That doctrinal purity is important. That what we believe matters. We've got to love the same thing. And then not only that, in what they saw. He said being of one accord, of one mind. In other words, if they had these three things, they were like-minded, having the same love and being of one accord, they would be of one mind. And that describes what they sought. I wrote it down this way. What they thought described what was in their heads. What they wrought described what was in their hearts. And what they sought described what they did with their hands. Their purpose being the same. So there was a need for like-mindedness. Not only that, there was a need for lowliness. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. What was the cause of their discourse? He describes it in two words or two phrases, strife and vainglory. Strife is the attempt to pull the other person down. Reminds you of what happened when the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness and Korah and Abiram and and, uh, his cohorts decided that they wanted to wrest power away from Moses And from from Aaron and and Dothan as well. But when those three men decided they wanted to wrest power from Aaron and from Moses, and they said this to him, you take too much upon yourself. Well, that may have sounded uh, caring. It may have sounded sympathetic. But what they were really saying is you all are not up to the task. They were trying to degrade and pull them down and convince them and convince others that they were not capable of of the job that was in front of him. By the way, can I remind you, that's not to say that that criticism is never warranted. There was a time when Moses' father-in-law came to him and said, you take too much upon yourself. And he was right. Moses said, you're right, and he appointed 70 elders. It was not necessarily the syntax of what was being spoken. It was the spirit of it. They were not saying, you take too much on, so let me help you. They were saying, you take too much on, so get out of the way you're not capable of. They were trying to pull him down. It was strife. And then vainglory. That's the attempt not to put another down, but to put yourself up. Uh, the first proponent of this would have been the devil himself. When he looked towards God's throne and said, I will ascend and be like the Most High. It is satanic at its very core to seek to tear another down so that you can build yourself up. But you know, really, at the very end of the day, that's exactly what causes all strife and discord. We grow discontented with how someone else is acting, behaving, reacting. And we decide that if not that we can do better, that we at least know better. And we say, I'm going to put them down. I'm going to put my opinion up. Paul says, that's why there's fussing. That's why there's fighting. But what was the cure for their discord? He describes the antidote. He says, look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of another. So he handles these sort of in reverse order. He says that there had to be a humbling of oneself. The cure to vainglory is true humility. True humility is not false humility, or or we might even say it this way, it's not self-deprecation. I think a lot of people think that humility is putting yourself down. But that's not true. The reality is we don't have to put ourselves down to put another up. I like what one commentator described. It said that true humility would be as though a man labored and built the most beautiful cathedral that's ever been built. That was taller and more, more uh, elegant and, and uh, more elaborate than anyone had ever built. And he stood back and he wondered at it in awe. And he would have been just as happy had somebody else been the one that built it. Pleased with the product, but seeking none of the promotion or the praise. We don't have to say that what we're doing is terrible to exhibit humility. But what we do have to do is recognize that it's not us that is the source of those things. It's God through us and that what is the priority is that the work get done, not that we get the glory, a humbling of oneself, but then an honoring of the saints. He says, every man also on the things of others. You know, I found this that one of the great cures to disappointment in our life is to always seek to find a reason To praise someone else when they're doing right. When I get to focus on myself, I find it to be a great source of stress. I find it to be a great source of dissatisfaction. But I find great joy, and I don't think this is me. I don't think this is a personality quirk. I think this is a component of being a child of God. I think it's true for you like it's true for me. That you'll find far more joy in seeing God work in others' lives and being able to point to God in their lives than you will in constantly pointing to yourself and exalting yourself. It can only be received well by the person you're talking to when you point to how God is using them. But there's always a chance it won't be received well when you're talking to someone else and point to them how God is using you. The antidote to this is humbling oneself and honoring the saints. And then notice that he points to a need for largeness. Uh, He describes that uh, they need to have an inward attitude, not putting focus on themselves. But rather, putting emphasis upon another person. And they had, need to have a helpfulness, seeking and desiring to try to exalt others and help them in their endeavor to serve and to seek the Lord. So, we've seen Paul's approach to the example of Christ. Now we come to these big verses, for lack of a better way to say it. These, this hallowed ground. Not that all the Word of God is not hallowed, but there's something particularly deep about these next few verses. Look with, look at them with me. Verse 5. He points to the person of Christ as an example of what it means to settle strife and discord through the sacrifice of one's self. When he says, let this mind be, it's the word for It means to think of or to be mindful of, for it to consume your focus and your attention. And what he's basically saying is the same attitude that Christ had needs to be the same attitude that we have. And he reveals several things about who Christ was. First off, he reveals Christ as sovereign, as the Messiah. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, I would remind you to notice the order of that title. Over and over and over again, it is used in one of two ways, either Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. And this order is deeply significant. It, it, it reveals something about the overall context of what the writer is seeking to convey to us. When we talk about the the title Christ, we're talking about the exalted Messiah, the anointed, the chosen of God. And when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about Christ in His earthly ministry. He wasn't called Jesus before He was born of a virgin's womb. That was His earthly name. Jehovah is His salvation, that He shall save His people from their sins. So the term Jesus is closely identified with His humbled and human ministry. So think about the order here. He is the high, exalted, holy, anointed one that has chosen to condescend to a humbled station that he might serve others. It's interesting because this is the way that Christ knew him or that excuse me, that Paul knew him. Paul knew Christ personally, first and foremost, as that light shining brighter than the noonday sun in his glorious, exalted condition. And then he came to know Him as he identified with the fellowship of his sufferings through Paul's own personal suffering and imprisonment. He came to know Christ's earthly ministry and earthly life and earthly behavior, both through the testimony of those that knew Christ personally, but also through the suffering and fellowship of that suffering that Paul himself experienced. So it makes sense that Paul would sort of have this perspective about Him, because that's how he knew Him. On the converse side, you'll find that Peter and James and John would often refer to Him as Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because they knew him the opposite way. They knew him first off in his human ministry. They walked with him. They talked with him. They broke bread with him. They, they stayed in the same places he stayed in. And it was not until after the resurrection that they really came to see clearly him as the exalted, anointed Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and the Savior of man. So when they communicated things about him, they often use that terminology. But Paul calls him Christ Jesus. And it reminds us that He is the Messiah, that before the world ever was, He existed. Before the world was, He was. That in the beginning was the Word. Not not a statement of, of birth, but a statement of existence. The Word was. He has always been. It's interesting because there's four statements made here. And you see them in your notes there. His sovereign, as Son, as servant, as Savior. And each of these four correlate to a different gospel. For instance, as the sovereign Messiah, we are reminded of the Gospel of Matthew, which portrayed Christ as the King of Jews to the Jewish nation. Then it says, "...let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God." This reminds us of the Gospel of John, that He is God in the flesh. Not only that He's the Messiah... But that He is the maker of worlds, that He is the creator of all things. The word form here, morphe, it denotes the essential form of something, the very substantive existence of that thing. For instance, I am a human being. I'm a lot of things. I'm an East Tennessean. I'm a, I'm a conservative. I'm a hillbilly. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Tennessee fan. I'm a lot of things... But in my basic form, I'm a human being. I'm a human being. That's what I am. Well, Christ, in his basic elemental form, what he was, who he is, is he is God. He is God in the flesh. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery there denotes a plunderer's prize. Something that is owned or something that is possessed but is not rightfully owned. In other words, it's implying that the Lord Jesus did not condescend, robe Himself in human flesh because it was inappropriate for Him to be on the level of God. It was no plunderer's prize. It was His rightful existence and state. He wasn't just God by proxy. He was God in substance. He was God in actuality. And there was no problem with Him being on the level of God. Now remember, the context is we're talking about how to... How to uh, resolve discord and strife, right? Can I remind you of this? God, one of the, one of the basic fundamental characteristics and elements of God's character and personality is His righteousness. His rightness. That God is never wrong. Jesus Christ was God. At the source of discord and strife, you very often find two people that both believe they're right. It was not wrong for Christ to be in the form of God. It was not inappropriate. It was not unacceptable. He did not do what he did on the basis of principle. He did so on the basis of compassion and love. And even, dare I say, pragmatism. What would get the job done? So as son, he is God in the flesh, uh, manifest for us. Then it speaks of him as servant, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The form of a servant reminds us of the gospel of Mark, which presents Christ as the servant of God and the servant of man, that he is the minister of God. The phrase no reputation, it means he emptied himself. And it's just uh, caused a lot of people to uh, wrongly divide this passage and gain the idea that what it means is that he ceased to become God, that he emptied himself of his divinity. The only problem with that is that every other shred of Scripture that you'll find refutes that. Uh, He looked at those that were around him during his earthly ministry, and he says, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He had not in any way abdicated his His place or position of authority does not mean he uh, emptied himself of the Godhead, but it does mean he emptied himself of his glory, of his glory. Can I remind you that Paul himself said in Colossians 2, 9, that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Never for a moment was Christ anything less than God, but he was also 100 percent man and He robed His divinity in flesh. John's language is very expressive because when it says the Word was made flesh, it it means He tabernacled amongst us, like dwelling in a tent. And that's sort of, you know, when you think about the Old Testament tabernacle, if you looked on the outside, it didn't look astounding. It didn't look beautiful. It was covered in badger skins and goat skins, and it would have just sort of looked like this big, ugly hut out there on the desert. But the moment you walked inside of it, you would have been absolutely overwhelmed by all of the brass, by all of the gold, by all of the silver, by all the fine linen, by all the rich colors. In other words, all the beauty was on the inside. (coughs) Like Isaiah says, that when we see Him, there's no form or comeliness that we should desire Him. On the outside, he didn't look like much. But on the inside, he was God in the flesh. God himself. And then notice the last phrase. It says, he was made in the likeness of men. I wish I could say all this exactly how it ought to be said. But I want to read something to you if I can. That I think describes this better than anything that I could ever say myself. If, if as sovereign, it reminds us of the Gospel of Matthew. As son, the Gospel of John. As servant, the Gospel of Mark then here we're reminded that He is the Savior. He became man for you and I. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And it reminds us of the book of Luke. Listen to what the commentator says about this. The Holy Spirit's final summation of the person of Christ in Philippians 2, 5-7 is that He was made in the likeness of men. The Gospel of Luke, since Luke, writing primarily for the Greeks, depicted the Lord Jesus as the perfect man and the wondrous Savior of men, Each of, by the way, the Gospels were written to a different group, a different, different recipients. The, the Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews. The Gospel of Mark was written to the Romans. The Gospel of Luke to the Greeks. And the Gospel of John to the world at large. The ideal of the Greek world, listen carefully, was perfect humanity. The Greek peopled Mount Olympus with gods made in the image and likeness of men. Zeus and Hercules and all of these various gods. They took the lines of human personality projected them into infinity, and conceived of gods who were simply larger additions of themselves. So in other words, they created God in their image. Now, do you remember what the book of Genesis says, that whenever God created man, He said, let us make man in our image. Mankind was created to be a representation of who and what God is, and there in His perfect state of innocence with the energizing influence of the Holy Spirit to govern and guide His works and walking in perfect fellowship with God, He was a fit representative before Adam ate of the fruit, before he sinned and sin took hold. Man was created in the image of God. The Greeks created their gods in the image of man. Since the lines that they projected were the lines of fallen human personality, the gods they conceived of were fallen gods. They were gods who lusted and warred and behaved like super-sinners. Each of their gods being a, a, uh embodiment of some vice or of some wickedness. When Jesus came, God gave back to the human race a perfect man. Luke portrayed him as a man who, while sinless, was full of love and compassion for sinners. While he was in constant touch with the world of evil, he remained holy. In Luke's gospel, we meet one who was loving and lowly, patient and kind, humble and holy, pure and undefiled. Jesus was very much a part of the human race, yet absolutely without sin. We can take the lines of the Lord's human personality, project those lines into infinity, and have a perfect concept of God. If we want to know what God is like, we need only look at Jesus. He could say, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Paul described Jesus as the second man. He is the second man for two reasons. One, he is the second man because man in sin is not man as God intended man to be. So God calls Adam the first man and Christ the second man. He is the second man because he is not the last man. He is the last Adam, but not the last man. God intends to populate heaven with a race of men and women just like Jesus. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. God was made in the image and uh, man was made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus came in the image and likeness of men. Now we can be made anew in the image and likeness of him. John says we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Luke specialized in keeping before us the wondrous, sinless humanity of him who was made in the likeness of men. So here we have the son of God. He has left his exalted, rightfully owned Appropriate state of glory and of reverence, he has condescended to walk amongst fallen men, to be servant to mankind as well as servant of God, and to feel and touch and experience the pain and trials and afflictions that mankind himself feels. Where did all this consummate? Verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I don't have time to dive in this the way that I want to. But you know, the thing that Paul was always amazed at was the cross. In his lost condition, he could allow for the idea that God would have a son. Uh, There's language in the Old Testament that seems to communicate that idea. And even believers in the Old Testament were called the sons of God. He could allow for the fact that the Messiah would be God in the flesh, for there's language about the Messiah that could be attributed to no one but God. He could even accept the idea that the Messiah would die. Or who could read Isaiah 53 and not see that the Lord's servant, who was spoken of in Isaiah 42, was the suffering lamb that was led to slaughter in Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would become the slaughtered lamb. But I think the thing that Paul always struggled with is the idea, not that Christ would die, but that he'd die on a cross. A cross was a cursed way to die. The book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. To be hung upon a tree, to be crucified, or to be hung from a tree was a signification that you had been rejected by both man and God and that you were deemed unworthy in the eyes of both. And I think that Paul sort of probably picks up that that Holy Ghost pen for a moment and pauses before he recognizes the great lengths to which Christ would go to reconcile. To resolve the discord and strife between God and man. That he would be willing even to sacrifice himself. That he would be willing to be the recipient of the cursedness of God. That mankind might be brought into the presence of God. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Not just any death, but even the death of the cross. What then do we see as a result of this? We see the person of Christ, the passion of Christ. But then notice the position of Christ. Uh, twofold. One, that He is exalted. Look at the next phrase. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Notice why every knee will bow. Because He is the one. That has garnered or has owned the authority from God. That he has been willing to pay the price for every single. He has bought and paid for every human being. Not everyone will own him as Savior. But one day everyone will own him as Lord. You know why? Because he paid the price for everyone. Even those in hell at this moment have to acknowledge that he's Lord of all. His authority is unmatched and unchallenged. He, because he paid the price for mankind, he's the master of all man. So God has highly exalted him. And notice where every knee will bow. Three things. One in heaven. The word that is given here, epiranios, it denotes a celestial realm. Sometimes it's talking about uh, heaven where God dwells. Sometimes it's talking about the universe, the cosmos, as it were. But I think it implies... Well, I know it implies that which pertains to heaven. And I think what it suggests to us is a, a realm of spiritual activity. In other words, when Paul talks about us warring not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places, what Paul is saying is one of these days in that celestial realm that Satan himself finds uh, to be his domain. You know, he's he's the prince of the power of the air. And every single one of the beings that lives and wars in that realm, be they angels, be they demons, uh, be they Michael the archangel or Satan himself, one day every one of them will bow the knee before Jesus Christ. He's exalted above all of them. Not only in heaven, but down here. He says uh, things in earth. Every living person will one day bow the knee. You will bow the knee. I will bow the knee. Not just symbolically, but explicitly one day we will all bow our knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. President of the United States, the one before him and the one that comes after, every one of them will bow their knee and confess Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Every dictator, every world leader, Every every atheist that shakes their fist at God's throne, every one of them will one day bow their knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is right. He is righteous. He is authoritative. He is powerful. He is invincible. He is God. Every one of them will one day confess Him as Lord. But not only those in heaven and those down here, but also those in hell. He says those under the earth. Now remember that whenever Paul writes this, the, the whole dichotomy of paradise and, and hell being juxtaposed one to another, that's already been done away with. Uh, he revealed in Ephesians that Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive and led them on high. And hell enlarged herself as is described by the prophet Isaiah. So now when he describes those under the earth, he is describing only lost people. So he's saying every saved person, but he's also saying every lost person, every person in hell will one day bow their knee. Before him, he is exalted, but not only that, he is extolled. He says every tongue should confess the word confess means to agree with the rightness of every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He denotes a universal confession. They can call God a liar. They can claim he's a fairy tale. Uh, They can march in parades. They can put silly and rebellious and defiant stickers on their cars, but one of these days every one of them is going to have to say with their own God-given tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is a universal consequence. Not only will they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they'll confess it to the glory of God the Father. Oh my, there's so much I wish to say here, but the glory of God, I'll just say it this way, is the supreme reason for all of God's actions. You can look at God's government and not explain everything that He does. You can look at God's grace and not explain everything that He does. But if you keep a focus on God's glory, you'll find a reason for everything that He does. We may not understand every bit of it right now. It's like the sun, the glory of God is. Sometimes it's obscured by the clouds, but it's always shining. And one day in an endless day when the clouds have all been driven away, the reason and rhyme for everything God's done as it redounds unto His glory, will shine into our intellect and understanding. And we'll know why He did what He did, for we'll see how He derives glory from it. Finally, I want you to notice in a few closing statements these last few verses. Look with me at verse number 12. Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved... Now that word, wherefore, means because of that. (laughs) In light of that, in response to that. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only... But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, I want you to notice that now he's going to apply the example of Christ's conduct. So first, he leads up to it by telling them that they have a responsibility to put away all strife and discord, that they owe it to him, that they owe it to the Lord. that the only way the church is going to be able to move forward is if they'll put themselves aside and, and, and prefer one another and choose the path of peace instead of the path of pride. And then he's shined a light on Calvary and he said, look at what Christ did. Look how far he went so that we might be reconciled unto God. And God did not leave him on the cross. God didn't leave him on the grave. He was not the worse for having made that sacrifice. God has exalted him. I think sometimes, well, I'll just tell you about me. Sometimes I, I, I'm afraid to react in grace because I'm afraid people take advantage. You ever feel that way? I don't want to be too nice. People take advantage of me. Now, listen, we need to be wise as as serpents, harmless as doves. I'm not suggesting that we be anyone's doormat. But let me do say that when there's an earnest desire between Christians to put an end to strife, we don't need to fear that God's going to leave us hanging out on a limb. He'll make sure that we are vindicated just as he did Christ. Now he's going to make application Of this truth. And he says there ought to be a a threefold transformation. First off, there should be a transformation in our conduct. He says, work out your own salvation in fear, with fear and trembling. He says, you've always obeyed in my presence, but not only in my presence, much more in my absence. Can I make a quick note before I move on to make an application here? Anytime, you know, when I was growing up, when I was in school, if the teacher left the room, that was an opportunity. That was an opportunity to do something wrong. That was an opportunity to flick somebody's ear. That was an opportunity to throw something at somebody. You know why I was that way? Because I was childish. Because I was childish. Maturity suggests to us that when the teacher leaves the room, there's a greater responsibility thrust upon us to do the right thing. It's spiritually immature to believe that the measure of our Christlikeness or godliness should be what we can get away with. Instead, it should be... How and in what way can I exhibit the life of Christ? And how and in what way can I fulfill my duty and responsibility to Him? Paul says, not just in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he tells them this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. My preacher used to always point this out, that he does not say to work it in, he says to work it out. The commentator said it this way, we cannot work for it, but we can work at He gave the illustration of someone being given the gift of a gold mine. And all the value is there. All the preciousness is there. All the treasure is there. But it's got to be mined out and brought to the surface in order for it to be beneficial. Well, in the same sense, you and I are full beneficiaries of everything Christ did. We are... 100% full bore, not a layaway plan, not an installment plan. We are 1,000,000% saved by the grace of God if we're saved at all. We're as saved as ever we're going to be. Sometimes that salvation is buried under a lot of layers of carnality and pride and disobedience. Paul says bring all that stuff to the surface by fully surrendering to the Lord. Let that salvation work its way out of you and make an expression of in the world around you. Not only does he say that there has to be a full surrender, but there has to be a faithful service. He says, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. It's interesting because in verse 12, when he says to work out your salvation, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to say this, I'm going to give it a shot though, ketergazeomai, I don't think that's right, but that's how I said it, is the Greek word there. And it, it, it sort of implies almost like a student working out a math problem. In other words, they're not earning anything, but they're just trying to bring to the surface the truth of the matter. But when he says, God worketh in you both to will and to do, that is the word energia, where we get our word energy from. And it means to energize. And he explains it. He defines it for us. He says, it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. To will means to desire. To desire something. And to do means to put it into uh, to action. In other words, the Holy Ghost puts in us both the desire and the determination to live for God and to do His good pleasure. All we need to do is surrender to His leadership and allow Him to work in us. Because it's not us that's energizing us. It's not us that is affecting it. It is our responsibility to allow that to shine forth through obedience It is our responsibility to not hold it back, but to allow that vein of of gold, as it were, to be brought to the surface. But it's not us that brings it. It's God that does that. We just merely need to surrender to Him and to His leadership and to His guidance. So we see a transformation of our conduct, but then there's a transformation of our character. Look what it says in verse number 14. He says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So first he says we need to have a Christ-exemplifying temperament. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Here again, we come back to the testimony of Israel in the wilderness. It's a bad test phone. They spent all their time, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. They had to be people say that some folks say that Baptists started with the Huguenots. Some say it started with the Anabaptists. Some say that it started with John the Baptist. But I'm convinced it had to start with the Israel out of Egypt because as soon as they got out of Egypt, they started complaining. (laughs) They did all things with murmurings, with disputings. And Paul points to the fact that that kind of attitude is not the attitude that Christ had. Christ never murmured against his father. And he never disputed with his brethren. The times when there was strife or the times when there was conflict, it was based upon the disobedience of man towards the will of the Father. But it was never a matter of personal preference. It wasn't Christ saying, we'll do it this way because this is how I like doing it. He never sought any opportunity for dispute with people around him. Rather, he always sought for peace to be there if it could be there. That's why Paul says, as much as in you is, live peaceably with all men. Some men cannot be peaceably lived with, but if it's possible, we ought to strive to live peaceably. Murmurings denote a complaint against God, and disputings denote a complaint against others. And it ought to be our goal, our desire, to not be the source of discord or of drama or of dispute in the body of Christ. We ought to always strive to be the source of peace. Not saying snapping things, sniping things, criticisms. It's so easy to do that. And we yield to that so often. When we do that, we're not being Christ-like. There's a lot of things Christ could have said that He didn't say because it didn't edify to say. And there's a lot of things that we maybe could say, but how does it uplift the name of Christ? How does it encourage our brethren? How does it accomplish the goal us to do it most of the time all it does is make us feel good for a moment and then feel bad about it later now we're not supposed to have that kind of attitude we're supposed to have a christ exemplifying temperament and then we're supposed to have a christ exalting testimony you can look in your notes and see this expanded a lot i'm not going to go into detail in it but i do want to mention a few things here he points to the fact that the truth should be visualized in our lives he says that we be blameless and harmless to be blameless is to be without reproach To be harmless is to be without harm. It is to not do damage to other people. In other words, our conduct ought to be such that it does not in appearance or in substance do damage to the name of Christ or to others. Why is that? Because we're the sons of God. That is both an incentive and that is an energy through which we are able to accomplish that. Because we are the sons of God, we should be blameless and harmless But also, listen, because we're the sons of God, God lives within us. The life of Christ is lived through us, just as he was blameless and harmless. When they wanted to crucify him, they had to pay men to accuse him of things, because there was nothing for them to accuse him of. His testimony was spotless. And that's the life that lives through us. If we'll follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The life of Christ is lived through them. Because we're the sons of God, and that's how we accomplish it, without rebuke. Notice what the world expects. They expect to be able to rebuke us. See, we see this in society all the time, man. A lost person can do something 700 times and nothing will ever be said about it, but let a Christian mess up one time and it'll be front page news. Uh, we, can, we can fuss about it, we can cuss about it, we can curse, we can, we can shake our fists, but it won't change the fact of it. Instead, we have to do our best to live above it. And to make sure... Listen, you can't make sure nobody's ever going to slander you. But you can make sure if they do, they'll have to lie to do it. You can't stop someone from saying something ugly about you. But you can make sure that if they do, they've got to make it up. Just like Christ. Just like Christ. Uh, notice the world that we live in, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. There's a lot we could say about that crooked and perverse nation. Who is he talking about? Was he talking about the Jewish nation? Was he talking about Rome? Was he talking about Greece? Was he talking about the world at large? I'd say he could have been talking about any of them. The fact is, he'd be talking about America too. And we have an obligation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We are the visualization, the expression of the truth of Christ. And we need to live like it. Not only do we see the truth visualized, but we see the truth verbalized. He says, holding forth the word of life. Literally means to hold something forth on display. Like a little child will bring something to you. My little boy does this to me all the time. He'll, he'll be he'll be sitting there and, and he's got this show that he watches. And it's got a character in it named Jet. Alright, it's a jet plane and he loves it. And as Mama said that she was laying down trying to get some rest yesterday. And she put on that little program for him. And she'd fall asleep and he'd say, Mama! 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 And she'd look up and he'd say, Jet. And then go back to watching it. And she'd drift off to sleep. And she'd hear him say, Mama! 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 She'd look up he'd say, Jet. And then go back to watching it. She'd fall back to sleep. All the time he'll come to me and he'll say, Dada! 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 Say, what, Schofield? He'll say, look. <laughs> he just wants me to see what he's got. And he holds it out there so that I can behold it. Maybe he's proud of it. Maybe he's astounded by it. Maybe he's guilty over something. But he's holding it forth open-handed so that I can behold it. That's what Paul says we're to do with the word of life. It ought to be the thing at the forefront of our life. The word of God and the gospel in particular. We're holding forth the word of life. Paul says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. He's saying this, I want to know when I stand before the Lord that you were the real deal says, the way I'll know that is if you live differently and if you live determinatively in the world around you. In other words, if you are the salt of the earth and if you are a light before the world and if you hold forth the word of life, I'll know you are the real deal. Notice, finally, that there should be a transformation in our concepts. I'm just going to mention it in passing. First off, note Paul's example. Verse 17, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul said, I find joy in service. I find joy in sacrifice. We typically don't find joy in service or sacrifice because often we do it begrudgingly. Now, that's not to say that even if we're doing it with the right spirit, that service is not hard and sacrifice is not hard. Of course it is. But there is a spiritual reward of encouragement, peace, fulfillment, and joy found in living for the Lord and knowing your life is counting for Him. Paul says, I find joy in being a sacrifice for you. The language implies a drink offering that would be poured out along with a sacrifice given in the Old Testament. And when they pour out that drink offering, the the size, the proportion of the drink offering was relative to the importance of the sacrifice. And that drink offering, they pour out grape juice, which is representative of joy. The idea was that you were symbolizing the joy with which you were giving this sacrifice. That it wasn't something you dreaded doing. But it was something you enjoyed doing that you might give back to the Lord that had done so much for you. Paul said, man, I enjoy giving a sacrifice because what I'm doing is I, as I labor for you, as I serve you, as I sacrifice for you, what I'm really doing is saying thank you to the Lord that loved me, saved me, and bought me. Then notice his exclamation, verse 18, For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. (laughs) You know what I see when you come to the very end of these verses? I find that when Paul opens it up, he says, you know, I see a bunch of people fussing and fighting and can't get along. And then we spend a little while looking at Christ and looking at Calvary. We learn how to love one another sacrificially. And as you give in sacrificially and as I give in sacrificially, and as we see the peace and harmony that we enjoy as being a product of our service to God, by the time you get to verses 17 and 18, Paul said, man, I'm happy just to serve you. And I know you're happy just to serve me. That ought to be what service is like in the body of Christ. Not something we're doing begrudgingly. Not something we're doing because we have to, but something we're doing because we get to. Because the one that we're doing it for has done so much for us, and we're merely following in His example. You remember what the Hebrews writer said? It said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the Father. Joy. The Lord did not enjoy the cross, but there was joy that came through the cross. We may not enjoy our service in as much as we have to buffet the flesh to cause ourselves to serve others and to serve God. We may not enjoy the sacrifice in as much as we have to do without so that others can have. But there's a joy through service and through sacrifice that is only experienced through that path. Paul says, that's what I'm enjoying, that's what you're going to enjoy, and he's exhorting all of us to put aside our strife, to put aside our pride, and to labor for one another and with one another for the glory of God.